Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin podcast. My name is Matt Brusky, and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action, and welcome to another week from Wisconsin. We are short Jorna Taylor this week. We'll miss her, but she'll be back next week. In her place, we're having uh, two special guests. Uh, the first is Kevin Kane. He's an organizer. He's actually our organizing director here at Citizen Action. Kevin Kane, welcome. Morning, gentlemen. We're also going to have Anita Johnson on later in the podcast. I'll talk a little bit more about that. But our panel this week also includes Robert Craig, Executive Director here at Citizen Action. Robert. Good morning, everyone. So Anita Johnson will come on later, and that is going to be connected to a contest we're going to have here on the podcast. We have a pair of tickets to go see Trevor Noah here in Milwaukee at the Paps Theater next Friday night. And uh, we're going to have a contest later in the podcast. We'll give you some details about that and how you can win those two tickets. So please listen. But we have Kevin Kane on to talk about uh, two topics today that uh, he's done a tremendous amount of research uh, for Citizen Action and organizing around. One is the EpiPen, and we're going to talk a little bit about why the EpiPen is so important and connected to healthcare. And the other is to talk a little bit about uh, some numbers that Kevin uh, generated to talk about the wages that are connected to our manufacturing jobs in the state and how those wages have fallen. And we want to have a conversation as it is we're heading into Labor Day weekend and uh, to connect that to talk a little bit about the economy, which we'll do. So, Kevin, uh, first of all, we're really glad to have you. Um, tell us why. Uh, we should care about the EpiPen. I think most of our listeners, well, let's just let's take a step back for our listeners who maybe don't know as much. Uh, the EpiPen has uh, gotten a lot of national news because it is, one, a very critical uh, prescription for folks who have epilepsy, who have... Uh, what are the different things it's used for? It's used for people who have food allergies. Allergies. And for other sort of uh, allergy-related uh, uh, issues for when you're having anaphylactic shock and you find your airways closing or you're having some other immediate crisis. It's one of those drugs that uh, when you need it, you really need it immediately. You need it on hand, and uh, that's the whole part of why this drug seems so different than every other version of just the simple... Um, epinephrine or, or the adrenaline if anybody ever saw the movie pulp fiction and they stuck it right in the in the heart uh it that's what it would be without the EpiPen sort of injection mechanism and so this is this is something that has become in, indispensable for for many people and, and families to to use and uh the big thing nationally is what happened is the prices went from about 95 dollars or so in 2007 to well over 600 dollars now so tell us a little bit more about that, and then... Yeah, and, and back up a little, Kevin, yeah. on this. Tell them about where it even came from, who paid for the research into this technology, whether there's any justification for so, the $600 price, right? So the EpiPen was uh, developed by our our public, our, our government, really. I mean, we had individuals who were involved uh, working for NASA, working for um, a number of other public agencies who did this on military contracts to create an injection mechanism that would be able to help uh, our troops and uh, people who work in the public sector, uh, such as in, in NASA and all that, uh, to create a, a method that would help dispense available drugs much more efficiently. And so it was like anecdotes to nerve gas, so you know, carrying that around with you, that kind of thing. Exactly. Right? Yeah. It's much like the internet was not created by some entrepreneur somewhere. It was because of government invents, investment and an infrastructure that was already put in place. And so we end up having a, an injection uh, or we, a program that uh, the reason you're hearing more about EpiPen is, I mean, it's really, really hard for any 
CEO of any pharmaceutical company to seem worse than the pharma bro, worse than Martin Scarelli, the um, person who, who most recently jacked prices up a huge amount. But when you're talking about a, uh, a talking about a pharmaceutical uh, product that is both easy to understand, helps kids of all people, and uh, it it clearly was made in the in the public sphere, pu- public sector. Um, the government helped create the darn thing, and it raises prices so dramatically. Then uh, you know it's it's easy to understand why why the EpiPen is is getting so much attention right now. And it's very dramatic. So, with some of the other pharma scandals, if someone doesn't take a chronic disease drug and then they die earlier, there's not some dramatic event. This is like a kid is in shock, needs the EpiPen, doesn't have it because the parents couldn't afford it. And the things expire after a year, so parents would have to, even if it doesn't happen, have to buy $600 worth at least, if they have to use them even more, every single year. And so, and, and quite frankly, with Scarelli, it was a cancer drug. This is literally about, uh, it's like being in a, in a desert and selling people uh, bottles of water they need to save their lives for $1,000. It's that kind of thing. And, and they didn't do any great research, right, Kevin? Mylan didn't do anything to justify this. Nothing new about this since 2007. They just took advantage and they kept generics out of the market. And they've just taken advantage of, of this kind of situation to hold life and death over families in order to take uh, uh, windfall profits. So... Kevin, talk talk to us a little bit more about some of the research you did and, and others, and I think Wisconsin Democracy Campaign, around here the connect here in the state of Wisconsin to the state legislature. And in particular, I mentioned that the prices went from about $90 to well over $600 now in, in less than 10 years. Um, what, a little bit about the politics behind how that can happen and how, how someone can, can raise prices for essentially a drug that has not changed. We have monopoly prices in some areas, and uh, the main reason why this happens is because you have a drug that is for a very specific issue. And as Robert put it, um, trying to sell it to people who need water in the desert. I mean, whether it's uh, an uh, an anaphylactic shock that requires an EpiPen, whether it's an overdose that requires Narcan, or a heart attack that requires the drugs related to addressing that. This is an immediate problem now. And so companies and these these CEOs will admit they're for-profit businesses. They're trying to, I believe, what is it, extract the most value out of their product possible, is I believe how they would define it. Uh, they want to make sure that uh, if you need the drug immediately, that you're going to pay out the nose for it. And they'll say that, oh, the only reason people are paying attention now is because insurance companies are making consumers have to see more of the cost. Well, that doesn't defend the fact that their prices have gone up sky high. They have nothing to do with their cost of research, which is their lie, right? Have to do with what the market will bear. And they don't care if if, if some parents aren't, aren't able to afford it, frankly, as long as they can make profits. And it gets worse, right? Mm-hmm. They did a big corporate inversion. And so not only did they offshore these profits, they didn't pay back to the society, they paid $5 million to cover the tax bill of their CEO as part of the inversion, since he was going to have more higher taxes. So he's taken care of. So $5 million for the CEO, but for the kids? So we, right now, they're, they're companies like Mylan are, are using uh, public resources and uh, uh, the demand that is generated in the public sphere to help market their product, market their brand. Um, I mean, they even tried to walk it back recently, I think it was a couple of days ago, where they said that they would create a generic EpiPen for $300, half the price of the current one. But then it was also put out there that each one cost them $2 to make. So tell us a little bit more then about these markets and how they're created and how the state legislature played a role in really helping 
grow their market for them. In the last couple of years in Wisconsin and across the state, uh, or across the country really, we have legislators who were trying to do the right thing to make sure that you know, well, they thought it, that's what they that's what the argument for it was was that they were trying to they make sure said, yes, yes they were trying to make sure children in school settings and community groups and Day churches camps, exactly right? yeah. had access to life saving drugs that are timely and that people were were qualified to use it and so in the last few years in Wisconsin we've had a couple of bills uh, that have become law that have both. Um, allowed and re- in some cases required and um, made sure that more EpiPens, specifically EpiPens, they even called it the EpiPen bill, uh, were available to be put into more schools uh, to make sure that nurses, not just nurses, but uh, teachers and guidance counselors and even in some cases other students were dispensing these uh, to schools that needed them. In fact, these bills were rushed so fast that the original one didn't even require people who used an EpiPen to dial 911 after the incident happened. The problem with these things is that the EpiPen only works for like a very short amount of time just to prevent an emergency from you know, ending your life right now. It makes it so you're able to survive until EMTs arrive. So you had the School Nurse Association and a number of other groups jumping in and saying, you know, you, you can't just let anybody have these EpiPens and just assume everything's going to work out okay. So what ended up happening is that Mylan uh, spent $42,000 between 2013-2014 and then $24,500 uh, the following session lobbying Wisconsin legislators on issues of both affecting the manufacturer, uh, distribution, and sale of drugs, as well as specifically these bills uh, that would make it so more schools, more organizations were getting EpiPens into their, into their area. And we actually looked into this and found out that just the expansion of this program to make sure that amusement parks, restaurants, uh, daycare facilities, universities, colleges, recreational camps were, had access to this, it cost the state of Wisconsin seven hundred and excuse me, $77,500 uh, per year just to administer this. So we have a, we're investing state resources right now into putting these branded or implements into more and more facilities um, each time the company either sells them at a giant profit or uh, in some cases they've been donating them to schools at a massive tax write-off. And we've helped make sure that EpiPen has become ubiquitous. When it's and the write-offs at their retail price for the EpiPen, ironically. And a little campaign cash, right, Kevin? Absolutely. In fact, we've uh, looked into this and found out that thousands of dollars in contributions were made exclusively to Republican state legislators and predominantly to those who serve on the Senate Health Committee, which is responsible for writing, drafting, and passing this these Milan bills. So that's Wisconsin Democracy Campaign money. So just to imagine this, the lobbyists come in and say, we got this thing that's going to help kids, right? And and you can help, right? This EpiPen is great. You know, kids go, goes into shock from a food allergy, they're at camp, and the EpiPen can save their life, right? And so you're doing the right thing. And here's, by the way, we're also contributing to your campaigns. And by the way, for us, since clearly they've shown they don't give a darn, I mean, the company for Mylan is just about building a bigger and bigger market that they then, can, then they can pay their, they can make people pay their extort, extortion level prices for, right? And so essentially what happens is, is that the legislature is for sale and is aiding, abetting the creating of a monopoly uh, for these folks to exploit. So it's literally like taking all the other water out of the desert and promoting just the place that's charging $1,000 a bottle for people in the desert who need water to survive. On top of that, we are now, uh, th- these bills passed about a year ago, especially the ones related to um, recreational amusement uh, camps, colleges, universities, and all that. 
And the, the idea at the time, and I had legislators who voted for this bill tell me that uh, they, they passed these bills because Milan said we are going to make many donations of free EpiPens to public organizations. Well, that was exactly a year ago, uh, back in July, actually, a little over a year ago. And these pens only last a year. And so no one actually knows if our schools, our universities, our, our uh, youth sports leagues and, and restaurants are actually, are, are they going to get more donations or are they going to actually have to start buying them, which might have been the actual purpose of these bills to begin with, to massively expand not just the brand, but all the public organizations and civic groups that are now locked in because they have EpiPens and they want to keep EpiPens for all those who are thinking those are the only options. So Kevin, what should be happening here in Wisconsin? We need to make sure that these drugs are transparent, and uh, we need to actually get to the bottom of what these things cost to make, how much is being spent on manufacturing, marketing, uh, let alone lobbying. We've been able to find some, but there's no guarantee that that's all the lobbying going on, all of the uh, uh, contributions to political campaigns. And so Representative Deb Colsty uh, introduced a transparency bill that would actually require drug companies like Mylan to both explain and justify the rates for the drugs. And this is why we draw attention to myelin, but it's not unique to myelin. We want to make sure that it's whether it's the EpiPen, it's Narcan, it's inhalers, or whatever the drug is, uh, we are actually getting to the bottom of this. And while this sounds hard, because the pharmaceutical industry is the biggest lobbying group in the world, uh, in fact, it's one of the most profitable industries in the world, states like Vermont have already done this. And this was only about a two or three months ago that the state of Vermont did. And so if one state does, more and more are going to follow. We need to not only learn what this is, but in some cases actually cap rates or um, prevent them from, from charging huge amounts, just like we do with public utilities and try to do with insurance companies. So the bill, just to be clear, because the listeners might be saying, Kevin, they might be saying, well, what good is transparency? Mylan, what Milan's doing is transparent to me, but we're not stopping it, right? Is, is that uh, Representative Colsty's bill does give... Uh, uh, the authority to recommend to the legislature um, taking other actions like capping prices when mm -hmm. the drugs are found to be excessive. But there's actually a public process for determining whether the prices are excessive or reasonable. And no one is saying at this point, though maybe in the future we should, if the pharmaceutical industry proves as impossible as the health insurance industry in terms of actually doing the right thing and being a constructive uh, player, uh, we're not saying they can't make reasonable profit. We're seeing they can't make windfall profits, and quite frankly, if you allow them and Wall Street to decide, they'll say, well, 25% is enough. We need 50%. We need 75% profit. Uh, and so there's no end in sight unless we literally require that they only have a reasonable profit. And quite frankly, we already have that for health insurance. There's the complicated thing called the medical loss ratio that says 80% at least of health insurance premiums have to go to actual medical care. So you might do the same with pharma. So... What I think is important about this is this EpiPen is something that a lot of people have used, right? And so it has been a flashpoint to talk about the broader issue that we know is the next wave, and that is how do we go after the costs in healthcare? And pharmaceuticals are absolutely critical to that. And so if you're listening to this and you want to get involved, you need to contact Kevin 
about this and not only get involved either specifically about the EpiPen, but more broadly about how we're going to go after drugs, cost transparency, pharmaceuticals, and then the broader costs in healthcare, because that's where the improvements are going to be made around Obamacare going forward. So Kevin, if someone wants to get involved, how do they get in touch with you? You can reach out to us at Citizen Action's website, citizenactionwi.org, or you can email me directly at kevin.kane at citizenactionwi.org. Org. And just to follow up on Matt's point, uh, Matt, you are absolutely right that we need to do as much as we can to say it's not just insurance companies. Obviously, they, they need to be uh, regulated and, and looked at, but it's pharmaceutical corporations, it's uh, hospital industries, it's every, you know, people are, are, are shocked when they hear that the cost of healthcare differs not just in the cities that you live in, Madison's cheaper than Milwaukee, for example, but that places like Minnesota have so much lower healthcare costs, and, and Illinois has different rules as well. And so what we need to do is remind the public that it, this EpiPen, this drug issue, is not just a federal problem. States like Wisconsin can and must take action, and that's what uh, surprises so many people. They just assume, oh, this is a D.C. problem, D.C. is a quagmire. No, here in Wisconsin, ideas are being suggested. We can work in finding and suggesting more, but Wisconsin can and must do all it can to make sure people are not being priced gouged when they need water walking through the desert. So with that, we are going to change topics, and it's another topic that we're going to keep Kevin for, because Kevin has done some amazing research over the last month around not only WEDEC, and we talked, we've talked about the Sherman Park numbers, but also more broadly just sort of looking into our economy and really trying to get in and better understand the rigged economy and where, where workers are getting caught in this economy. And uh, this week, in fact, uh, yesterday, most people listen to this on Friday morning, on Thursday, we are releasing numbers that Kevin put together that really took a look at manufacturing, which we know Wisconsin has a, a huge history and sort of a legacy and our kind of narrative about who we are is connected to manufacturing and still a significant part of our economy. And uh, Kevin has found that uh, the wages in manufacturing have dropped significantly. Uh, so, Kevin, could you talk a little bit more about what you specifically found and why you think it's really important to this discussion? So we're going into Labor Day, and uh, our listeners are going to get this on Friday, maybe Saturday, and get a chance to listen to it as they're going into Labor Day weekend. And we thought it was appropriate to, to look into the... The, the manufacturing job itself. I mean, it's it's ubiquitous in this this state. We we see it as something that uh, is a big part of our history, and it's something that many people want to bring back into this country. Uh, those that have been outsourced out, and we've been talking at Citizen Action for a really long time about those manufacturing jobs that were outsourced. That many of those who got public subsidy but sent the jobs out anyway because that's still not currently illegal in this state. Um, so we, we crunch this numbers. In fact, that's why I'm not on the podcast more. It's because I usually am sitting over a spreadsheet trying to figure out what the next uh, numbers thing we're going to release is. Otherwise, I'd be here all the time, guys. Uh, <laughs> so today, in a media call today being Thursday, uh, we are going to be joined by State Senator Dave Hansen, State Representative Evan Goyke, and AFL-CIO Secretary-Treasurer Stephanie Bloomingdale as we actually show what has happened to these manufacturing jobs since 2010. And we've even looked at earlier. And we found that when you, when companies are outsourcing jobs, when we pointed out that since uh, WEDEC was launched, 11,000-plus jobs have officially been out, offshored, off the, outside of the country, outsourced out of American borders from Wisconsin alone, 
that that has a huge impact on the rest of those who are still in this in this industry. I mean, we've seen and heard, and I'm sure many people on the call, or excuse me, many people on the podcast uh, will have heard the story. Look, we either need to cut your wages or we need to offshore outsource these jobs. And so make a decision. Well, that's a terrible decision for so many people. And sadly, a lot of, of folks have said, well, I'll take the wage cut because at least I have at least I have the job left. And so the impact of outsourcing, of al- allowing companies in our state to take public dollars and outsource jobs has led to huge wage drops in, in Wisconsin uh, major areas across the state. So we actually looked at places like Appleton, Green Bay, Janesville, Madison, and we looked at the average worker in the manufacturing sector, and we wanted to know, what do they make now versus what do they make in 2010? And we found that a, a huge drop in, in no metro area in the state did we find that wages adjusted for 2015 dollars um, have grown at all. In fact, they've shrunk, and in some cases, they've shrunk substantially. In, in places like uh, uh, Madison, we've seen that the average manufacturing worker in, in Madison um, is actually, once you adjust for inflation and cost of living, is making about $2,500 less per year than they made five years ago. We found places in, in Milwaukee, it's $1,000 less now than they made uh, five years ago uh, per year. And then even places like Janesville, it's far higher than that. Janesville, that's uh, Paul Ryan's district. Uh, what, what are the numbers there in Janesville? We're, we're seeing that in Janesville, uh, and Janesville was a, a really relatively high uh, average uh, wage for a manufacturer there five years ago, and that's a good thing. But after all the deindustrialization, all the outsourcing that's been allowed to happen, the uh, average worker who works in manufacturing in Janesville in 2010 made $41,000 uh, and now is making about $35,000. So altogether, it's it's more than $6,000 less on average that these workers are making. They're still employed, but these workers are making on average than they did five years that, ago. That is a shockingly large number. And and by the way, this these these manufacturing losses in terms of income are on top of what we've known is also happening in the public sector in a lot of these communities. Robert. Yeah, so when Paul Ryan, with his little Cheshire cat smirk, says that, yeah. that things are going great with global trade and that he's a he's pro, quote-unquote, free trade, it's rigged trade, actually, um, this is what's happening in his own district. Yeah. And here's what happens. If you pit workers against workers overseas, who also, by the way, deserve a fair shot at the at at at, at economic prosperity. But you pit them against them; uh, they have very low wages. In a lot of companies, countries like China, uh, unions are brutally suppressed. You're you're murdered for trying to organize a union, right? And so, if wages are that low, then ultimately, what happens is is that the the jobs either go overseas if the wages are lower. By the way, they, there's a huge carbon impact to that if you ship everything in from China, which is never considered in these global trade agreements. Um, but then, just an aside, uh, but that, but if the job stays, then they have the leverage to lower the wages, right? And so when oh, the Weedex of the world say, and they, this is what they say internally, that it's good to outsource because it makes a company more competitive, what they're saying essentially is, is that we're only going to keep the jobs here where we can still we can still have labor for less overall productivity versus cost and the others will be outsourced and so they're literally aiding companies in this process of either sending the job overseas or to another state low wage states like Mississippi or to lower the wage and so we can see the impact not just the over 11,000 people in Wisconsin that have been outsourced in the last 5 years but we can see it in the reduction in direct reduction in wages and by the way 
that puts the lie to Governor Walker's whole narrative. How many of you have heard Governor Walker running about the state talking about the skills gap? Uh, if you build it, they will come. If we have these skilled workers, then they will fill all these positions and there'll be prosperity. Well, if there really was a manufacturing skills gap, right, then the wages would be going up, not down. They're able to lower the wages. If there's any kind of skills gap, it is they can't find people at low enough, at these lower wages. And so they need a, a more, and bang, if you want to think about it, what I want to do is glut the market with people with those skills to bring wages further down. And this also is what happened with public employee unions. So this is a piece with Act 10. So if you want to connect the dots, this is the manufacturing private industry version of Act 10. Now, we're going to have a lot of people who are on this podcast who may be remembering or have personally experienced someone saying, look, we either need to lower wages or we're going to going to send these jobs overseas or out of the state, you know, what what was us in that way. But it's not always that simple. And and a lot more people are going to empathize with the idea or, or remember the idea of um, my wages have been static, yet everything seems more expensive. I, how am I, I can't make ends meet the same way that I could five years ago, that I'm struggling to be able to afford the basics like doctor's visits and rent and food and all that stuff. And what we're finding is you're right. We're finding that while in some cases, the wages haven't changed that much, and some they've gone down significantly. When you actually control for the cost of living, you control for how much health care and rent and, and housing and education have gone up, in real terms, you, you've you lost a lot of buying power. And it's so, just inflation, right? You're exactly. not adding, just to be clear. Right, right, right. right. So, um, so it's, it's apples to apples. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Well, so, look, and we will, by the way, just the teaser for podcast listeners only, B, probably within a week or two, uh, providing more information on the actual cost of the economy. So that's just a, a teaser. That's that, that If you're asking how big an impact is having the Wisconsin economy that wages are falling this much, uh, Kevin is asking the same question. So we'll have more information on that come, moving forward. Yeah, I mean, if the average worker in Janesville in manufacturing is $6,000 less in real terms than they did five years ago, what does that mean for actual the rest of small businesses in Main Street in Janesville? We want to tell you that. Yeah, and this, of course, has a direct political and electoral impact this week. Uh, the AFL-CIO was holding its convention, and uh, former Senator Russ Feingold spoke and spoke very clearly about trade and talked very clearly about these rigged trade deals being unfair and and uh, that he would not support TPP, whereas we have uh, our current senator, Ron Johnson remains undecided on TPP, so uh, I think we know where he stands. Um, the other big news is TPP will not be coming up for a vote uh, this cycle, according to the Republicans. I th and I think a lot of just that has just to trust them. Yeah, just trust them. Uh, obviously, a lot of that has to do with the political uprising that's occurred around this election, both uh, quite frankly from the left and on the right around uh, trade and the rigged economy. So we're going to continue to watch that. The other issue that I wanted to point point up connected to this is, you know, in Wisconsin. We talked about manufacturing being a core part of uh, kind of our history. Well, what more iconic company connected to that is, is than Harley Davidson? And in this week, uh, there were it was announced over 200 layoffs are going to be occurring in Harley Davidson, and here in Wisconsin, that is very specifically going to hit in Tomahawk, where nearly 40 workers are going to be laid off. And it was worth noting that the mayor of Tomahawk uh, uh, suggested he feels very blindsided by these numbers and, and, and found out that uh, I think it's the Department of Workforce Development had long known 
known about this, and he was not informed. So obviously there may be more information coming out about these Harley layoffs. But again, it just it goes back to what Robert and Kevin have been talking about. They probably right? didn't tell Wiedek, or Wiedek didn't at least keep any record of it. But Just that, that there's no strategy, that they're really not, this isn't an honest game, right? The conversation isn't clear, right? This is something that... Certainly, if, if uh, the state had information about these layoffs coming, it would have been very helpful for Tomahawk and, Mayor to know that. And let me be clear, we've talked a lot in the podcast about how the economy is made by people. Uh, apparently a shocking concept if you read most news coverage of the economy and many and most economists, quite frankly. So the opening to the Channel 12 in Rhinelander's story is Harley-Davidson blamed industry and market changes on Wednesday in announcing they'll be laying off 39 workers in Tomahawk. So it wasn't decisions of CEOs, it wasn't global trade agreements, it wasn't the way we've rigged the system. These things just happened. You know, it was just that the game got rained out. What can we do? Just uh, bear in mind. So Kevin, any final thoughts? We want to thank you for all the research you've been doing on this. We think it's very important to the conversation here about our economy, particularly heading into Labor Day. But, uh, but you know, any final thoughts for the listeners? Or, again, on this issue, we do a ton of organizing. If people want to get involved, they should uh, reach out directly to you. Absolutely. We want to work with you guys to make sure that all of our community members, all of our residents have good, quality, family-supporting jobs, and they can get quality, affordable health care. And uh, to make sure that you're not price gouged when you're getting drugs or, or getting a healthcare procedure and that you actually have a wage that can make you feel like you have a comfortable hold in the middle class. Well, thanks again, Kevin. And uh, I'm sure we'll have you on again soon here at the podcast. So, Robert, I want to spend a few minutes chatting with you about the elections. We are heading to Labor Day, which for people who follow elections on a regular basis is sort of the time when most political types say that the election really gets going and and uh, and folks start to really start to pay attention and we see things start to polarize in this election. And so I wanted to get your thoughts on a couple of things. One is the new polls that came out this week. Obviously, the Marquette poll has become something that a lot of people talk about. And we had a massive, uh, or fairly significant, I don't want to overly state it because it, it's explained uh, by some of the sampling, but a significant decrease in Trump's uh, uh, or Hillary Clinton's lead from 15 points down to about four or no, five points amongst, uh, I believe it's voters. registered That's voters. Registered. Correct. It's, low, it's, it's smaller among certain voters. Right. And uh, f- the Feingold Johnson uh, race also tightening in uh, the Marquette poll. I believe that was also down to three points mm-hmm. amongst registered voters. There was a second poll, the Monmouth poll that came out that showed basically similar numbers for the Clinton Trump race, but showed the Feingold. Uh, Johnson race uh, still in double digits, but in favor of Russ. Right? In favor of Russ, very, very, very good point. So, but either way, right, Robert? This is, I think, the polls are telling us what we kind of already know that that um, one, both of the presidential candidates are still fairly unpopular and, and continue to be polling in relative low numbers, high numbers of undecideds or people flat out saying they're voting for green or libertarian, um, but. The big overarching thing is something you've harked on. We're, this is basically a swing state, and we are coming back to the reality we are a swing state. So the media frame is very dangerous uh, for us because they've had so many scandals on Trump. He's so ridiculous that they've created the impression that he that it's already over and that this is Barry Goldwater redux, and we already know it. But 
It's almost like it's the Packers already winning the and the, the NFC North now with the news of the Vikings, huh? Now, it is true that Hillary's winning in virtually every swing state and even some red states like Georgia, so uh, it's an electoral map uh, wipeout right now, but that those a lot of those could flip, including Wisconsin, especially since of, uh, with unexpected events possible between now and the next election. Uh, quite frankly, if we had a financial collapse, we had a terrorist incident, a major one, or something else I'm not anticipating, uh, then who knows? It could it could it could swing this, and so we need to be very very careful. And the big problem here is is that despite how weak Trump is and how unbelievable it is to imagine that he could get enough swing and independent voters to actually win an election, Hillary is startlingly un unpopular. So on the head to head in Wisconsin, it's Hillary thirty seven percent. So she's way beyond below base Democratic performance. Trump 32, Gary Johnson 11 percent, and Green Party candidate Jill Stein at 7 percent. Now I'm not predicting that Stein and Johnson will end up with those higher numbers, but nonetheless, it shows a lot of dissatisfaction. And part of it is, if you look at other parts of the Marquette poll, it's the incredible amount of voter dissatisfaction. So even Charles Franklin, the very establishment pollster who runs this poll, is shocked at the high level of pessimism because things are fine, you know, in uh, in in Dr. Franklin's world, uh, but. Literally, 49% of registered voters think the next generation will, uh, will have it much worse uh, than, than people do today, and only 20% see a bright future for the next generation. So that's the context, and what Hillary Clinton needs to do is to show that she is an agent of change. And so she needs to keep doubling down on the platform that Bernie Sanders was nice enough to make much more progressive. Uh, now, I was on the platform committee, so I can tell you that the Hillary folks agreed to an incredibly progressive platform. Hillary has done, has promoted it. They need to continue to do so. They need to explain to people that they're going to shake things up because, unfortunately, her brand is as one of the most establishment candidates ever to run in a very anti-establishment year. And so that's what's keeping Trump in the game, uh, regardless of how absolutely unhinged he is and how many uh, fascistic policies he proposes. I think he's been moving back and forth in immigration and has finally decided that his base is so bought in to essentially a, a proto-fascist uh, trail of tears of removing 11 million people uh, that he's back in that direction. Though, Matt, isn't he saying that he'll just immediately find and remove the 2 million, we don't know where he gets that number, criminal illegal aliens. I'm not sure how, does he have GPS trackers on them? And there's no reason to say what, what, uh, what force they will be used, uh, expulsion force will be used in, in, this, in this crime against humanity. Yeah, Robert, I mean, y your transition to the policy was, uh, was, is, is accurate because of the this, um, this speech he gave on immigration on, on Wednesday night. And, you know, look, we, we've talked on the last couple podcasts about how his campaign team has changed, right? And we, we assumed he would be doubling down on sort of this conservative right wing and anti-immigrant. And the immigration speech he gave after speaking with the Mexican uh, president clearly indicated that there'll be no change, there'll be no moderation. He has declared, well, there's a whole 10 points plan that you'll have to read for yourself, and it's amazing uh, disappointments, but uh, the top one is he says on day one within an hour, right? Like he's deporting over two million criminals, right? Which 
no facts, no sort of where these numbers come from and the notion that he could do this in the first hour and how disruptive that would be. But it just shows that, look, this guy, this is an unusual election. He's not going to run a more typical election. Uh, and so it remains incredibly fluid. And, and I think the polling actually uh, shows that. And Robert, you bring up, right, this is generally a, a, an electorate that's not overly optimistic. And that is not necessarily Hillary's best playing field, and Trump is certainly uh, seizing uh, on the economic anxiety. And and you know we've talked about the trade and outsourcing, and so I absolutely agree. Right, it's really critical that Hillary be seen as someone who's actually an agent of change on this. Um, but we'll 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 have to we'll continue to monitor this. Uh, we'll have Jorna back next week to be able to <laughs> uh, dive deeper into these elections. But Robert. Jordan is gone this week, but that doesn't mean Paul Ryan watch needs to go away. And so I wanted to get your comments uh, on Paul Ryan and Ron Johnson's op-ed this week that I'm sure trenchantly laid out the case against the war on poverty, basically saying that the federal, we failed on the war on poverty. Uh, Robert, this is, of course, comes out before Labor Day weekend. I'd like to get your thoughts and and where they're going. And, and of course, I assume this thing is coming up short. <laughs> okay, well, if I was going to try to do something real on poverty, as uh, Paul Ryan wants us to believe he's all about, right? As a, and this is what his, his book last year was about, and he claims it comes from his Catholic faith, right? Of course, the first thing I would do is have an op-ed with Ron Johnson, that champion uh, uh, for the poor. Well, I was going to say, good, I'm glad you could comment. He, nice writing partner. You must be thinking he's helping him. Yes, that's who I'd yeah, work out for. I mean, are we going to have, a, have an op, a joint op-ed with Donald Trump on immigration <laughs> reform? So anyway, what we get in this, uh, obviously, staff-written warmed over, uh, you know, cold oatmeal, uh, is that is first that there are wonderful things happening in the community and they're doubling down on the Joseph Project in Milwaukee, which they point out, I mean, you can look at their own facts, uh, vans 10 people from Milwaukee's urban core out to Sheboygan County for better jobs. Now, stop and think about what that means. That means there are no jobs they can get of any value in the largest city in Wisconsin. They have to be vanned out, okay? So, but then we're told that this is a homegrown solution. This is the kind of thing we need. So we're going to be vanning people. Churches are going to be finding the money to van people over the place. Ten at a time. By the way, there aren't enough jobs in Sheboygan County either for all the folks in Milwaukee, let alone all the people in Sheboygan. So this is absolutely absurd. But what it is is it's an excuse to say, we'll just let all of these uh, heroic people in the neighborhoods take care of it and be innovative. And this is like point number two. They have harness the talent of community leaders. No, dump it on community leaders and wa have our, our, the leading officials in our country wash their hands of it. That's what we're talking about here. Then we get the ridiculous right-wing screed that since the war on poverty has not ended poverty, it must have failed and therefore it should be ended and that would be better. Okay, it's sort of like saying we haven't been able to bail out all the water from ongoing floods. So let's just stop bailing water. Things will start. The, the bailing has failed. Right. I mean, that's literally what this means. It'd be like in the middle of World War Two. World War Two has failed. Let's stop fighting Hitler. So I mean, literally, that's what this is like. Uh, the best research on this. And I challenge uh, Paul Ryan. He can bring all the right wing think tank experts he wants together in South Carolina last year to refute this evidence. They can't that would poverty be 40% higher 
if you didn't have uh, the great society programs and, and, their, and their descendants that still exist. And what they like to say, what conservative think tanks like to say, and Ryan likes to say, is, is that the poverty levels are lower than the government says because they don't count all the transfer payments, okay? Well, guess what? That means there are a lot of transfer payments, and therefore people aren't as poor. That's the point. So you can't have it both ways. You can't say, unless you want to argue, which they're trying to suggest, if somehow it's the incentive to work. So there, it's been discredited long ago that there, if we, that that this is a supply problem. That is supply of initiative. Uh, in America, people feel people people who don't work feel humiliated. People want to work. Okay, they're just locked out of the economy, and you don't want to do anything to require to, to restructure our private economy or restructure our society so that everyone who wants a good job can have one. By the way, that's become Walker's refrain. So it's very Orwellian because then Walker turns around and says forcing people off food stamps unless they go through a crappy jobs training program is somehow helping everyone who wants a job get one. But that's the same here with Johnson and Ryan. Uh, they should both be ashamed of themselves. Robert, that was an awesome Paul Ryan watch. I think Jorna will be very proud of uh, your ability to hold it down while she's gone. Um, in I just more broadly, Citizen Action has, and Robert's been taking a, a lead role in trying to work with uh, faith-based groups around how we can address poverty over time. And so there's going to be a lot more very exciting work coming out after this election and down the road uh, around poverty and, and, and really taking on a lot of uh, this, this argument uh, that Ryan and Johnson are making here that somehow uh, the community or charity or private charity or religious charity could make up this kind of gap and, in and addressing And one thing poverty. we've talked about with faith-based leaders all over the state, and there's great support for this, uh, is the fact that child poverty is dramatically increasing in Wisconsin as measured by the number of kids that are eligible for free or reduced school lunches. So do we just have, from over the last 10 years, a growing crop of irresponsible kids who aren't able to pull themselves up by the bootstraps? Has something changed morally or ethically? Or is there something going on with the economy? And is the economy, let me return, human-made? Or is it just bad weather that we just have to adapt to? I mean, would Senator Johnson like to even talk about funding the Joseph Project to scale? Oh, no. We wouldn't need to do that, even if it was simply a matter of banning people to Sheboygan. I don't want to dump on the Joseph Project. I think people in these communities that are trying to do what they can are, are doing great work. It just needs to be understood that there's always so much you can do. It's like talking about the heroic things done in Hurricane Katrina and saying, therefore, FEMA didn't need to do anything. We didn't. Right. It was okay that George Bush uh, had a completely incompetent political hack in charge of FEMA. Right. They're both true. The people who tried to help in Katrina were heroes, and the fact that FEMA wasn't positioned to actually help people during a, a natural disaster like that was an outrage. They're both true. So we have reached the point of the podcast where we are going to talk to you about our contest this week. And as a part of that, we have a guest. So we are glad to have Anita Johnson join us. Anita is an organizer with us here at Citizen Action. She's been on the podcast a lot to talk about her work on voter ID and the lawsuit she's involved in. And we had her on, I believe, just a week ago. Right. <laughs> a week ago to talk about the early voting, and, and that early voting has been expanded. So we've brought Anita back on because we want, uh, we, we want her to be a part of our contest that we have. And so um, we have this contest, and that is to try to win two tickets to the Trevor, Trevor Noah show. And for folks who don't know, Trevor Noah has taken over for Jon Stewart on The Daily Show, and he's awesome. And he is going to be in Milwaukee next Friday night at the uh, Riverside Theater 
And I believe the show starts around 7 or 8. But we have two tickets, and we're going to give those tickets away in a raffle. We're going to do a drawing next Monday at about noon. And in order to enter, that's why we have Anita here. So Anita last week told us that the changes in the laws that have come down have allowed an expansion of early voting, and she reported a little bit on how a number of municipalities are expanding and opening up early. So what we want to do is have you get in touch with Anita about what the clerk's office are doing in your municipality. So Anita, let them know, right? I assume you can just reach out and contact your clerk uh, at, at your municipality? Yes, this is a good time for you to talk to your election clerk call your election clerk and ask her when does or him when does early voting start where is the location and how long will it run please send that information to me anita.johnson at citizenactionwi.org or you can phone me 414-899-3386. This is on a first-come, first-served basis. So here's what we're going to do. Um, you have until midnight Sunday to get this into Anita. Uh, I think emailing is probably best. Just call your clerk. And by the way, and, and I'll let Anita elaborate on this, if if your clerk is unaware, hasn't made up, up your mind, please just let us know that. And Anita, they should probably make a pitch to their clerk to expand it. Let them know what Madison's doing. Let them know that you can do you can do this early. Correct? Yeah, we're very excited that that the uh, early voting has been extended uh, back to ten, almost thirty days yep. prior to the election. So if your clerk is not aware of that, please let them know that because of the voting rights case that that has been, that early voting has been restored ask them if they're going to change the hours of early votings and you know you can vote on the weekends as well make sure that they know this now some of your municipalities are small so they may not have uh, other places for you other locations for you to vote in but if you're from Milwaukee or Madison or wherever, some of the locations will be extended, maybe one on the north side, one on the south side, and then your regular place to vote. Uh, please call your, your clerk and ask him or her where early voting is going to take place and what date early voting will start and end. And and just so folks know, you can, uh, if the clerks ask, they can start early voting as soon as the ballots arrive. So we believe that'll be at the end of uh, September. So again, here's the contest. You get two tickets to see Trevor Noah next Friday night at the Riverside in Milwaukee. All you need to do by midnight Sunday. So that is Monday morning, I guess that would be. Um, you need to email Anita Johnson your name, where you're from, and what the hours are for early voting in your uh, municipality. If you don't want to do that, the other thing you could do that would allow you to also enter is you could uh, email Anita and let her know that you're willing to volunteer three hours of your time for our election program this fall, where we will be calling voters to inform them about the changes to early voting and all of the opportunities. So again, please 
reach out to Anita, and we will draw that on Monday, and we'll inform you. So please make sure that we have your, you know, the best contact info to get in touch with you. And the tickets will be left at will call, so it'll be very easy for for you uh, to to get on. And I'll tell you what, if you're interested, we'll even have you uh, make a guest appearance next week on the podcast. So please get your entries in. And Anita, we thank you for all the work you're doing. And uh, hopefully we hear from a lot of people and we get a lot more information. I'm excited. This is the time they they can talk to their clerk and ask questions about other things as well. Yep. And we'll help get the word out. So thank you all. And please get into the contest and win those tickets tickets to Trevor Noah. Hey, before you go, Anita, what are you doing this weekend when you aren't out encouraging, educating people, although you may be busy all weekend. What's what's Anita Johnson I doing for fun? I actually have something fun to do this weekend. Great. I'm going to Chicago for the African American Arts Festival on Saturday. That sounds excellent. Where is that? Uh, it's at you know, Grant Park. Grant Park. At, in Chicago. Well, that sounds great. And then, of course, Monday I'll be at Labor Fest. Of course. we're In fact, Citizen Action will be at Labor Fest. We'll be marching in Milwaukee. Uh, Labor Fest uh, with the Radioactive, which is a, a new project uh, monitoring right-wing radio that we've talked about that the organizing cooperative here is doing. So, Anita, that sounds like a, a great weekend. We'll see you at Labor Fest. Um, Robert has had to leave us, so I'm going to do Robert's furlough. Actually, Robert, Robert is back. Robert, we really do actually want to hear an update on your mother, who's also a listener, and we hope we hope things are going better. How are, how are things? Baby bash is coming up, but I think that's in a couple of weeks. Oh, but there um, you go. Um, my mom has been uh, discharged from the hospital, so I'm going to be going down to see her. Um, so maybe on the side, it is college football beginning. Oh, that's right. So the Badgers are playing LSU, and uh, my Pitt Panthers are playing Villanova, which would be a better basketball than a football <laughs> game, probably. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're we're glad to hear your mom's doing better. We know she's a listener, so yeah, it is a big weekend. We forgot the uh, the Badgers are uh, going to be playing LSU. That's my best SNL skit for the Fond du Lac thing. If people are referencing Bayou Bengals, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, anyways, we want to thank Brian Woolridge who makes this podcast happen every week. Please, folks, enter our contest, and uh, Jorner will be back next week. And we'll see you here at the Battleground Wisconsin podcast. <laughs>